Thanks, Ken and Andrea, worship team and crew. How are you? Good. It's good to see you. Hope you are good. If you're a visitor with us today and I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm Jason, um, just, just one of the crew here. Um, I had the privilege and honor of serving as pastor, but um, really just, just one of the family, and uh, I'm the guy that gets to get up and talk. So if I had a chance to meet you, I want to do that um, after the service. So there's the invitation. Um, if you come, I'll be right here after the end of the service. If I haven't met you, I'd love for you to come introduce yourself to me so I could uh, get a name and face together. Um, in, uh, in preparation for today and getting the announcement out for men and women's ministry, um, you know, we are, we're at a place right now in our series, we're talking about how God is restoring the identity of man as a whole, but specifically manhood, womanhood. And we won't have time to go into that today, which is where men's and women's ministries pick up that baton and keep carrying it forward. And so our women did an announcement early in the service, and um, I was actually going to do a skit with Lewis where he puts on a big flowered straw hat and gets a megaphone in a basket, but they stole our idea. So I'm just going to have Lewis come up and talk about men's ministry and what's going on. So uh, this is Lewis Mattingly. Let me introduce him to you first. Uh, Lewis is uh, taking over uh, men's ministry for Solid Rock. And uh, to be honest, um, there really wasn't anybody leading it. Daniel Bray was teaching and I was kind of organized. So we're excited to actually have an official point person leader come into, uh, come into the ministry, but we're excited about what God is speaking to you and through you. And so I'm going to ask you to share, I know you've typed out some things with us in the way of what we should expect and what God is going to do through men's ministry. So Lewis, Mattingly, tell us.
Amen. All right. Well, uh, Lewis has, has, has figured this out, that the way you get to a man's heart is through his stomach. So um, I'm excited about the barbecue, but I'm more excited to see what you just described um, play out. And uh, I couldn't have said it any better, though I would have loved to have seen you in a hat with a basket and a megaphone. We might do that next time. Uh, I, think, I think we might try that. Uh, either way, I'm really excited about what God is going to be doing, both in women's and men's ministry, as he continues the process of of redeeming us and restoring us and fixing us and calling us back to the men and women we're supposed to be. So, Lewis, thank you. I look forward to it, brother. I'll see you Wednesday, 6.30. All right. Uh, absolutely. They're, they're cheering for the barbecue. Um, so you've got an insert in your worship guide as a reminder. Men's on one side, women on the other. Uh, men's ministries this Wednesday. Women are behind us about a month. So women make note of that. But you will need to sign up women for the head count, okay? So there you go, men's and women's ministry. All right, uh, Luke 15, we'll be there for our 45-second debriefing, and then we're gonna jump to Genesis and then all the way back to New Testament. It's gonna be fun. Okay, so just real quickly, here's where we are. Um, the second Sunday after Easter, we started a series entitled Red Letter Series, Okay. So if you have a red-letter Bible, you know what we're talking about. If you don't, we're simply looking at the things that Jesus taught um, in the course of, like, through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and how that teaches us about him. It teaches us about who God is. It teaches us about ourself, and it helps us actually read the Bible better, okay? And so what we've done over the last two weeks, and today and next week, is we're slowing down for just a second, pushing back from the table, looking in overview at this beautiful unfolding story of God. Okay, so the Bible is full of all these little stories, okay, and if we get too close in, we have a hard time sometimes seeing how they all fit together and connect together, and what does, what does Noah have to do, you know, with, with Paul, and what does um, Abraham have to do with the cross, and we, we don't really see those things. It gets kind of blurry when we get too close, and so we're stepping back to look at God's story unfold, how the little scenes play together, and my hope for you is this, really, um, two things. One we would learn to read our Bibles better. So as you're reading across Abraham in Genesis 12, you're thinking about something Paul said or something Jesus said. And so when you're reading Jesus talking about certain things, you're thinking about Abraham or Noah or Adam. And so I hope that we learn to read our Bibles better. Matter of fact, today, um, literally the best way I could preach today's sermon is read Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation. So I'm not going to. So I'm going to do my best, like a rock skipping across a pond, to touch the the elements I think are important for us to see the whole picture come together. I'm going to save Revelation for next week, okay? We'll end this little series in Revelation and God restoring ultimately man's ultimate purpose. Um, So today we're going to take overview, step back, look at how this thing fits together so that we can learn how to read our Bibles better. But here's really, really, really the, the bigger hope I have for you, that you will begin to see how you're seen, Okay? Your little life from conception to death, how your little scene plays into God's big story. Now, that's challenging for us because we tend to live like my story is the one that matters. And we begin to take a step back, we begin to see our little story shrink to be just one little scene in God's amazing story. It helps us understand marriage better. I think understanding God's big picture will help you be a better husband, a better wife. Helps us understand our role as parents better. I think we're better parents when we see how our scene fits into the full story, okay? So the the route, the journey we're taking to get here is we're looking at a parable from Jesus, just three or four verses long. It's the parable of the lost coin, where Jesus is teaching something remarkably big with very few words, okay? So let's go to Luke 15 together. We're going to make it We're going to do verse 8, which is where we've been, and we're going to slide one phrase into verse 9. So let's do that together. Verse 8, or what woman, this is just teaching a parable, a metaphor, a word picture, what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, okay, had something perfect and whole and good, and and, and one one, one became missing, the wholeness got fractured, something's not right anymore. It looks almost right, but something's not right. That was week one where we saw Adam and Eve participate in sin. And this this purpose, this image-bearing purpose of man was fractured. Then the next part of verse 8 says this. This is what God does to fix it. What woman does not light a lamp, 
sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. This is describing God from that point forward all the way to the cross and resurrection of Jesus, that he is lighting a lamp, he's sweeping the house, he's seeking and working diligently to restore what was lost at the fall. So today we slide into verse 9. Verse 9 begins with, and when she has found it. Now that sounds like such a simple phrase. We're going to spend really the entirety of today, and the men's and women's ministry is going to spend every time they get together from here on out discussing what that actually means. You see, found is the reversal of losing, right? So everything that happened in losing is redone, fixed, in finding. Now, oversimplified, right? But that tells us something about what God is doing. Okay? He sent his son to die on a cross. That was a big deal. It wasn't just God saying, look at how, how good of a lover I am. Look at how good of a sacrificer I am. We saw that in the cross. But God is finding, he's fixing what was broken in the fall through the death of his son. So today we're going to talk about how that plays out for us. Okay? So we're going to go back to Genesis 2. Start there and move forward. If you would, turn to Genesis 2 with me. We're going to look at a few spots in Genesis, then we're going to come back. Now, like I said, this covers Genesis 1 through Revelation. We're just going to skip down on a few points and see how the whole thing kind of pulls together. Pulls together. So here's what we learn through creation. Genesis 1 and 2 is God creating everything very good. Chapter 1 is the overview. Chapter 2 is the detailed version of day 6. Okay? I want to I start with where day 6 ends. So we're in chapter 2, 24. It's not good for man to be alone. God make, creates a compliment for him, a helper for him, a helpmate for him in woman. Then God brings her to him, and he's like, whoa, she's hot. And she's different. Like both. Like she doesn't look like any animal I've seen. But she's a much better looking version of me. Wow, she's bone in my bone and flesh in my flesh. She should be called woman. He's, he's, he's excited about this, as you can imagine. And then verse 21 says, therefore, okay, because God did it this way. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Stop right there, okay? So this is the climax, the end of this creation account. And God says, this is very good. So Man was created with an ultimate purpose, an essence, as an image bearer, a reflector of God. That's the purpose of man, okay? Now, how he does that is played out in function. So this is what we're talking about today. How does man do that? How does, how does man bear image of anything, himself, his culture, his God? How does he do that? through his functions, and then next week we're going to come back and see how God restores the ultimate purpose of essence. We're going to talk about worship, okay? So today we're looking at functions. So what functions has God given man in creation? Really two. One is relational. It's this idea of community. It begins in a marriage. There it is. If you're new here, that light does that every Sunday randomly. It doesn't mean we're almost done. So it plays out first in marriage, right? But then a married couple has children, right? Which leads to the mission that God gave man, multiply and subdue the earth. So he has a community aspect, a relational aspect. He's not supposed to be a lone ranger. He's supposed to be in a relationship first with a wife and a wife to her husband, have kids. Then those kids leave mom and dad, marry and continue multiplying, okay? So that's this mission God has given man not separated from his, his calling to community. And that's what we see in that verse 24. It's not just about getting married. It's about getting married and having kids, and those kids leaving mom and dad, getting married and, having, and multiplying. And God's building a kingdom here, okay? Problem is, that was day one. Day two, Adam leaves his post as leader. Saw it two weeks ago. So they were talking about earlier. Leaves his post as leader. Eve slides in. Right? And so the two participate in sin and the whole thing gets fractured. The image of God is now fractured. It looks almost right, like nine coins that used to be ten, but something's not right about it. So let's look together at this unraveling of this image of God over just a couple examples. One is in Cain and Abel. Okay? So mom and dad now have kids, Cain and Abel. Um, Cain and Abel had jobs. They had functions. Um, Abel was the keeper of the sheep. Cain was the keeper of the harvest. 
farmer or, or um, uh, what do you call a guy who raises cattle? A uh, rancher and a farmer. Thank you. I used to be a rancher, by the way. <laughs> It was only three years, so forgive me. So anyway, so one's a, one's a rancher, one's a farmer. Now, we're going to see something incredibly significant play out in their story. You're familiar that Cain kills Abel, right? So we know that's dysfunctional. But look at what happens in chapter 4, verse 8 of Genesis. Uh, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. What's that saying to us? They talked. They were in relationship with one another. But we're going to see it didn't, it, it didn't go well for them. So... Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, what were they doing in the field? What do farmers and ranchers do in the field? Work. So they're trying to carry out their function here, what God told them to go do. But look at what Cain does. Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and he did what? Killed him. Supposed to be working, right? And kills his brother. So you go, well, the sin was in him killing and murder. Yes, but the, 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 the bigger sin is this. They're in dysfunction of what they were created to be doing. Like, think about that. And that's always true with sin. Like, it's not just about doing the wrong thing. It's about what you're not doing that you are doing or what you're doing that you're not. You know what I'm saying? There's always a, a flip side to that. When you're tearing your brother down, that, that's sin. But it's also the opposite of building your brother up. And so instead of doing the thing they were supposed to do, they're not doing the thing they're supposed to do. And this is where murder enters. And so we see this. Genesis 2, 24, right? Kids grow up and have more kids. We see dysfunction. Dysfunction in this, um, this mission. I mean, how in the world are they ever going to multiply and subdue the earth if they keep killing each other? But we also see a breakdown in community. Look at what, Cain sa- what God says to Cain. Now, keep this in mind. Just real quick. Created for community, man supposed to be, and woman supposed to be relating with one another in community, this idea of unity together. But God is part of that community. He comes to Adam and even talks to him. He comes to Cain, okay? So God's still here involved. He speaks to Cain. So Cain kills Abel, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Look at what he says back to God. I do not know. That's a lie. I mean, he may not really know. I mean, like, I threw him in a river. I don't know where he is now. But he did know what happened. So he lies. But look at what he says. Am I my brother's keeper? Two things. Who taught man how to lie? Satan did. So he's already beginning to replicate and bear the image of, this, of Satan here in killing and lying. But am I my brother's what? Keeper. In verses 1 and 2, we read that Abel is a keeper of the sheep. Keeper is supposed to be the work that the man is doing, right, while he maintains unity in community. And so he's, he's putting the two together and saying, is that my job to watch after him like he watches after the sheep? And God's like, no, that's not your job. Your job was to be about the harvest and to maintain unity. <laughs> and you, you've, dis, you've dysfunctioned it. See, it's kind of like Cain is saying, wait a second, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing out here in the field, keeping up my brother. And God's like, you're right, but you're also not supposed to be killing him. And had you been doing the thing you were supposed to be doing in the field, your brother would still be alive. And so we see this unraveling dysfunction of identity and this idea of community, living together in unity, and working and, and working on mission for God. Now, this continues to play out. We get to the flood. God's like, ha reset. And don't go thinking that Noah was a super righteous, holy guy. I mean, God used him as a man, one of the only men who was, would probably even listen to God. And then a, a few pages later, he's drunk, naked in his tent, <laughs> exposing himself to his boys, okay? So, like, this dysfunction just continues. Chapter 10 of Genesis begins to describe all the different generations and how they're beginning to kind of land in clans. They're not quite nationalities or ethnicities because they're all descendants of Noah, his three boys, but they're beginning to kind of have some identity, okay? Then chapter 11 says this, that all the men of earth, as they begin to to move out east, which was their mission, multiply, subdue the earth, as they begin to move out, they begin to develop a unified ambition, which takes us to the Tower of Babel. So let's turn to chapter 11. I want to look at something, two things I want to note from chapter 11 of Genesis with you, okay? I know this is big. We're going to hit 11 and 12 And then we're going to go to the New Testament. Okay, So chapter 11, this dysfunction of purpose and mission and community is unraveling. Look at how it plays out by the time we get to chapter 11 of Genesis, verse 1. 
Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Incredibly important detail. Every phrase in your Bible has meaning and emphasis and purpose. Okay? So we're going to come back to that. So they were all speaking the same language, using the same words. Which is how it was supposed to be, right? Adam and Eve were supposed to be speaking the same language. Okay, so that looks right. Verse 2, and as people migrated from the east, so I guess they're actually moving west, so from the east to the west, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, hey, an idea? Let's come together. Let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Now think about this. This is, the, this is like technology. Man is starting to rely on his ability to manipulate the earth instead of manage the earth. Right? This is technology playing out. If we, if we cook these bricks, they're, they're, they're stouter. Man, I bet we could build something all the way to heaven. And this is where it goes. So man is beginning to rely on his own strength, and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, verse 4. And they said, here's their thing, come, let us build ourselves a city. Sounds like community, right? right? Then we can see where it goes dysfunctional. A tower with its top in the heavens, so we're going to make our way to heaven, and let us make a what? A name for ourselves. Now you see where it's all gone wrong. Man was created to bear the image of who? God, to make his name famous. And now man is participating in this dysfunction, utilizing this idea of community. Let's come together, but let's come together for our purpose, to make our name great. You, you want to hear the irony in that? Like, of course, that's still prevalent here today. But each person was like building their own kingdom, trying to make their own name famous. Had they achieved this and gotten to the top, you know what would have happened? King of the hill. Right? Let's make a name famous for ourselves. And we get to the top and we're like, whoa, what are you doing here? Well, part of this too. Well, not if I push you off. Right? So it wasn't going to work anyway. But we see how this dysfunction has set in and this purpose of man has completely unraveled. Now, God's going to speak into that through Abraham in Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3, okay? So I want you to just take a second, try to, try to absorb all that. The way God has created things to work is dysfunctioning and unraveling. Now, God's going to speak a promise into that. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, he's going to begin to promise the gospel, okay? All the way back to Genesis. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3 with me. He comes to a guy, Abraham, called Abram originally. Don't get confused by that. Now the Lord said to Abram, or Abraham, look, pay attention to this. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. So the family has become dysfunctional. He's actually calling him out of that, isn't he? Say, I'm going to fix this thing, but I need you to step out of your scene for a minute. And look at what he says to them. I want you to go to the land that I will show you. Now, that's such a simple phrase. He's, that phrase gets turned into the land of milk and honey. It begins to look forward to the promise of the gospel. But it gets more specific than that. Two, and I will make you a great what? I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your what? Name great. Well, it sounds like that's what they were doing at the Tower of Babel, Right? So what's God doing? Is he throwing in a towel going, fine, let's just do this. Let's build a tower. No, because he tells him why he's going to make his name great. Here's why. So that you will be a blessing. Abraham, I'm calling you out of the dysfunctional community. I'm going to work through you to bless all nations and put this thing back together. Look at what he says. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be what? blessed. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about what he will do through his son Jesus coming to earth. And that's where we're going next. But think about this. Abraham doesn't have any kids. All he knows is basically his parents' household. So when it says all families, it's not talking about a family reunion, right? He's talking about all nations, all ethnicities, every other family besides yours and including yours, Abraham. That's who I'm going to bless through you. So then we move forward. And really, if you want to understand the Old Testament, it's just this continual unraveling and dysfunction. And sometimes David gets it right, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes this guy gets it right, sometimes he doesn't. And so Israel's just kind of waning. There's another part of it, too. What starts out real promising here in this Genesis 12 
really begins to diminish over time through the Old Testament. The further you go in the Old Testament, the, more, the further you get from this promise, the more the people of Israel begin to kind of lose hope in it. All the way to the point where the kingdom becomes divided after David. Like, it's not getting better. It's unraveling. All the way to the point where the prophets are like, oh my God, somebody wreck this thing, right? This is, this is not going the right way. And then we get what at the end of the Old Testament? 400 years of silence. And then comes John the Baptist preparing a way for Jesus. And what is their message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What are they saying? Think back to the promise. Think back to the beginning. God created Adam and Eve to build for himself a kingdom, a a, a priesthood, a holy nation. And John says, get ready, here it comes. And then as soon as Jesus steps on the scene, what does John do? Whoa, not me, that's him. That's him. He's the one. So what does Jesus do? One man, right, and he comes as the new Adam, one man. So through Adam, the whole thing gets messed up. Through Jesus, it begins to get fixed. Jesus first calls 12 men to himself. What does he say to them? Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Simple calling. What's he talking about? Well, he clarifies it in Matthew 28, which is where we're going to go now and look at something. So at the beginning of the gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, hey, guys, come follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Then in Matthew 28, he tells them what that means. So Matthew 28 Start in verse 18. Jesus has died on the cross, buried three days, and resurrected. He appears, and then he commissions these guys. Verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So therefore, go, or go therefore, because I have authority, obey. Here's what I'm saying. Go do this. He's talking to the 12. Go and make disciples. Okay, who's he talking to? Disciples are supposed to go make disciples. So what do those disciples do? Go make more disciples. And what do those disciples do? You see how there's like this continuum is put in place? Okay. You are here today because these guys went and made disciples. And their disciples made disciples. And those disciples made disciples. And so if you're here today and you're a Christian, you're a disciple and, and you're part of this continuum, okay? But look at what is described here. Go make disciples of what? All nations. Does that sound familiar? Remember when the gospel was promised in Genesis 12? Through you, I'm gonna fix this thing, and it's gonna be a blessing for all nations. Jesus dies on the cross, resurrects from the dead, and has these 12 guys here who he calls disciples and says, all right, guys, here we go. Get ready. The kingdom is about to launch, which takes us right into Acts chapter 2, okay? Now, we're going to slow down on Acts and Ephesians, and then, and then I'm going to leave you with those thoughts. So, but I want you to see this. Um, this is the story of God, okay? He's the hero of his own story. You and I are just a scene in his story, okay? So we step back, we ask the question, What is God doing, and what has he asked us to do? So, here's what God is doing. He's fixing what what was lost, right? He's finding what was lost. That's what he's doing in his story. That's why Jesus came. But I want you to notice what he tells us to do. This, This very simple command, go make disciples of all nations. What is he saying? He's calling you and I to participate in the thing he's doing. Making disciples is not separate from God restoring his people. It's the same thing. It's the way he's putting his kingdom back together. He's building, he's restoring, he's redeeming his kingdom. So the one thing God is doing in the New Testament is the one thing the church is doing in the New Testament. Like Paul overviews it in Romans 8 beautifully, and he gets to a point where he starts talking about those who are called are also predestined, and then, but he describes that predestined and says, predestined to be conformed, into the image of who? His son. This is the thing God is doing, transforming people back to their original created image, okay? But it's the same thing the church is doing. You see, this is where it gets confusing in church, and I hope some things are beginning to work out for you. We create categories, missions, fellowship, 
worship, Bible study, don't we? Evangelism. And it gets kind of confusing. Like, oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be, oh, I got to go here and get. We see, wait, 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 it's way more clear than that. Like there's one thing going on here. God's fixing what got broken, and he decides to call it the church, which is the beginning advancement of his kingdom. And he calls those who are invited in to participate in continuing to keep that continuum going. You seeing that? Okay, and we'll get to worship next week. But this command to make disciples is so beautiful because he says, well, here's how you do that. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Super simple. What happens at baptism? What happened at Jesus' baptism? Does anybody remember what God says? Jesus is baptized. And God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He affirms his identity. He's mine. You, You know that's what you do at your baptism publicly? You're affirming your identity. That God's restoring your identity as a son or daughter of the most high God. So Jesus said, here's how you're going to do this, right? Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I've commanded. So this is how it works. This is how we make disciples. And if we do that and we begin to learn and observe what Jesus commanded, we begin to look like who? Him. This is is what quiet time is supposed to be about. Like there's a thing I've noticed, and I did this too. You study the Bible on your own, and God drops a beautiful gold nugget in your lap, okay? And you go, oh, this is awesome. So you show up the next day looking for the gold nugget, right? And then maybe it doesn't happen the next day. And you get it again the next day. And it's a while before that happens again. You know why I think that happens? Because I think we're looking for the fringe of what God is doing. Instead of asking that question, I'm opening the word, God, show me the story, Show me the gospel as I open the word of God in Genesis. Show me the gospel as I open Revelation. You know what's beautiful about Revelation? There are like, I can't remember how many, close to a dozen songs that we sing. Like that's the main thing we do. We'll get there next week is worship. We sing the gospel. So like, this is helping us learn how to to read the Bible. And so we go to quiet time, we're like, hey, okay, I'm, I'm done with that topic. I'm done with the gospel. Show me something else. And God's like, that's the only story there. Like, you'll get more gold nuggets, come back to day one. This is, this is the whole story here. Genesis to Revelation is this beautiful rescue mission that I'm on. Okay, I get a little excited about that. Now, Acts 2. Okay, so Jesus tells these, it's 11 guys because Judas bails, okay? Um, don't pick on Judas because we're all betrayers on some level. But Judas bails, he's got 11. They add one more back in in Acts 1, then Acts 2. Before Jesus dies, he gathers the guys to himself and says, hey, guys, don't, don't get scared when I leave because I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you. So he promises the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 is where the Holy Spirit shows up. And he shows up in a very detailed, remarkable way. Okay? I want you to see this with me in Acts 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all where? Together in one place. It's important. What happened at the Tower of Babel? They all separated and went to different places. If you know how that works. God confused their language. I forgot to talk about that. He confused their language. People were walking around going, I don't understand the words coming out of your mouth. And like, they were, yeah. And so all God did to destroy their efforts to build a great name for themselves was like, God is so awesome and powerful. He just tweaked their language and went, right? I don't even have to take your, your trowels away and your, your shovels away and your hammers away. I'm just going to confuse your language. And boom, the whole thing fell apart. Through languages. So look at what God does in in, uh, Acts 2. Okay, so they were all together in one place. They're gathered together again. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And look at this. Like, the Holy Spirit of God can, can seem a little freaky sometimes. Okay? But this reveals to us the Holy Spirit of God works specifically in order Revealing who God is, not chaotically, not randomly. So look at this together. Look at what the Holy Spirit does. And this is what it looked like. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now that's just crazy for me to try to imagine that. Luke is writing this down, okay? Luke is, is hearing this secondhand. And so this is the best way he can describe the way it was described to him. 
Luke probably wasn't there. He's just writing down what was described to him. And the way it was described to him, the only way it can be described is like a tongue resting on them. That sounds weird, right? They're about to speak in tongues. Look at how God works. Verse 4. And they were all filled with what? The Holy Spirit. Jesus said he's coming. The Holy Spirit's here. And, look at this, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here's what's going to happen. They're all sitting around, all these different people we'll see from all these different languages, and all of a sudden, people are speaking who didn't originally speak their language. All God did is what? Tweak the language thing back, and the Holy Spirit of God, like, wrecks them in a good way. Look, look at this. Verse 6, and at this, well, actually, verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from where? Every nation under heaven. Does that sound familiar? Right? So every nation was scattered in 11 of Genesis. 12, God promises to put it all back together. Jesus launches his ministry, to, right, to make disciples of all nations. Now, all these nations are gathered together. It looks like the Tower of Babel. The difference is God is tweaking it back towards unity. This is beautiful. Verse 6, at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. <laughs> Verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So if it were to happen today, you know, throw in about 12 different languages into this room, and, and for me to get up and speak, and, and all of a sudden everybody's hearing me speak in their own language, and you go, wait a second, isn't he from Texas? Like, he's from like Parker County, right? His English is barely right, yet everybody, that's the Galilean thing. It's like Parker County, and if you're from there, I am too. I, we get each other. These guys aren't even educated in their language and everybody's hearing it. What's God doing? He's beginning to restore, boom, what was lost. So when we get to this, like, um, I grew up in a small rural Baptist church, so speaking in tongues was like a weird thing for us. Just being honest with you, okay? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you were from a different slant, so you have a different view. But here's the thing. The gift of tongues is not a random, chaotic thing to scare us or it has order. It has specific purpose. It reveals something. When somebody gets up and speaks and it's interpreted, okay, here's what happens. God is displaying his ability to fix what was lost and bring man together. That's what tongues is for, to display our unity, not to freak us out, okay? You see how this one story is unfolding? Now, I want you to see something else. Okay, so then verses like 9 and 10 are explaining all these different people from all these different nationalities were there. Verse 11, both the Jews, proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Look at this. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of who? So they're, in Tower of Babel, they came together to make a great name for themselves. Now, through the Holy Spirit empowering them, they're coming together to make a great name for who? God. You see how this image bearing is being restored now? the work of Christ on the cross. Now, mission and community, okay? Let's turn to Ephesians. Actually, stop for just a second. Let's finish out Acts 2, because here's what happens. It's beautiful. Jesus starts as one man, calls 12 to himself. Acts 1, we make it up to 120, okay? But here's what happens. Holy Spirit shows up, wakes everybody up. Everybody's like, "Woo! isn't that cool? Peter steps up, I'm like, I think I'll preach, Right? What a great intro into a sermon. If the worship team could set me up like that next week. Where's Lou? I mean, I'm telling you, I want that. So Peter steps up, right, starts preaching. And then in the end, several thousand people are saved. Like in just a couple days, 1 to 12 to 120, now 3,000. Boom, the kingdom of God is like exploding on the scene here. Like by, we're at 20 million just 300 years in. Like this thing is blowing up. And so look at how Peter preaches a sermon, verse 41. I just want you to see something briefly with me. Acts 2, 41. This is beautiful. Look at what, what happens here. So we're in Acts 2. Peter preaches, verse 41. So those who received his word were what? Baptized. So it's like the apostles are like, oh, let's preach. So Peter gets up and goes, let me explain what just happened. God is restoring all things through his son Jesus. And so 3,000 people. People respond, and Peter's like, John, what do we do next? 
Jesus said, baptize them, right? So he's like, well, let's, let's baptize them then. All right, let's do this. So they, they baptized 3,000 people. I don't know if it was like in unison, like synchronized swimming, ba-boom, or like more like mass production, you and you, yeah, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, you know, I don't know how they did it, 3,000 people. But you see how it's unfolding? And then look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' what? Teaching. What were the apostles teaching? What did Jesus tell them to teach? Teach them to observe all that I've commanded. You see how it's unfolding? And then look at how they respond. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were now what? Together. What was fractured in the fall and community was separated and God's putting it back together and they had all things now in common. They just thought they had all things in common at the Tower of Babel. They didn't. They had a, a common mission to build a great name for themselves, but each one was on his own mission. And what this is describing is that God is putting his kingdom back together, one mission. Now, we're going to go to Ephesians. This is where we're going to end. Ephesians, look at something from 2 and something from 4, and then we'll be done. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is one of the most eloquent, beautiful, clear descriptions from Paul of how, what happens when God saves an individual. Okay? When a person becomes a Christian individually, he explains it all. Living in darkness, being made uh, new, we're saved, right? We're saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own. It's a gift of God, so nobody gets to brag. Ten says, oh, by the way, you're, a work, you're God's worksmanship, so you're like on the anvil like Lewis was describing. about. You know, he's like shaping you, chipping away. God prepares good and works in advance that you would walk in them. Then we get later on in chapter 2, Paul begins to describe how that's not the only thing Jesus did on the cross. Like, that's not the only thing God was restoring. That's fixing the sin issue. But God's also fixing the mission issue and the community issue. And the rest of chapter 2 explains this community issue. How God, at the cross, through Jesus dying and resurrecting, he begins to tear down walls of division. Between husband and wife, between parents and children, between white and black, between this language and this language, this people group, this people group, God, through the cross, began to destroy those walls and barriers. Look at, I just want to look at a few verses. Look at 18 with me. Okay, so what 18 is going to say this, that before Jesus died on the cross, you were lost and had no hope, but not only that, you were an alien. Okay, not, not like E.T. They didn't have Spielberg back then. But here's what they, he means by that, just before we get into it. I don't know if you were ever the new kid at a school, like you moved schools. That weird feeling when you walk in, like, oh, God, where am I going to fit in? How can I get in? The first person that talks to you, you're like, like a magnet to them, and then you get your bearings. Like, oh, I don't belong in this group. I belong in this group. You remember the new kids showing up, right? Okay, well, that idea of not fitting in is what Paul's talking about here. So he uses the word alien. So let's pick it up. 18, for through him, this is Jesus, we both, this is you and me, have access in one spirit to the Father. It's incredibly significant. The way I get to God, the access I have to God is the same as yours, so it's almost like we bump shoulders on our way to God. You see that? It's not like pick your door, which door you want to come in. We've got to go the same way. Look at the next verse. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. This idea that you and I come in through the cross and the Holy Spirit to the Father means that as we come together, something's happening. We're no longer like at odds with one another. Dividing ourselves because we're different. But now you are, this is the rest of 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's household. That's beautiful. From this point forward in your Bible, when you read about the saints, that's Paul describing those who are saved. Like that's our citizenship now, but it's more intimate than that. God's calling together a household. That's his, the way he describes his kingdom. It's like a dad with, with kids calling together my household. I'm conforming you back into your real original image as an image bearer, conforming you into the image of my son, my daughter. Christ, well, this verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There's that idea that I'm a stone, you're a stone, we're being built. Christ Jesus himself being our 
cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple for the Lord. Okay? So in him you're being built together into a dwelling place. It's beautiful. So here's the thing. I'm just a rock in God's story. I'm just a, a stone in God's amazing structure he's building called his kingdom. And as I lean in on the kingdom, and you lean in on the kingdom, and we begin to lean on each other like a rock wall, there's a cornerstone that we both lean on, which is who? Jesus. You see how your salvation is not just about you being saved, it's about calling you back into this community thing. And as I lean on you and you lean on me, we press in towards one another, what, what, what Lewis was talking about. Right, you take Jesus out and what happens to our relationship? Just like the Tower of Babel, we come crumbling back down. God said, I'm building a tower this time. My son will be the cornerstone. Ephesians, just a few chapters later in four. Um, so here's what happens to the rest of Ephesians. Four, we'll talk about our unity. Five, we'll shift to talk about marriage. Okay? So verse, chapter four, verse one says, Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse two, just catch this. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Okay, there's that image of the wall. Here's the point, though. I can't lean on you. I can't be patient with you. I can't be gentle with you unless you're here. Not like here in this, like here in my life. You see that? Like, you, you can't fulfill this unless you live life in community. So here's the thing. Like, I know the church has really jacked this thing up, and it, people are getting hurt. So the response I hear often is, you know what, the church is just not doing a good job, it's just me and Jesus. The problem with that is, right, you can't fulfill most of the commands of Jesus that you were taught to observe without another Christian to lean against. Like, I, I need you to be obedient to him. You need me to be obedient to him. You see how this works? Here's the thing. God's not just restoring individuals and saying, y'all go start a club, right? Put your name on a roll and start a club. God's saying, no, I'm restoring you as an individual, your little scene, and I'm pulling it into my story with others, and I'm building a kingdom. God saving me is not just about God saving me. It's about him restoring this beautiful, big story. So, I mean, I could go on. I'm not going to. So bear with one another. Three, eager to maintain the unity. It's already there. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, of the bond of peace. There's four. There is how many bodies? How many spirits? Just as you were called to the how many hopes that belong to your call? How many lords? How many faiths? How many baptisms? How many God and fathers of all? Who is over all and through all and in all? We don't create unity. Unity was created at the cross. We just maintain it. And when we begin to push back against one another in disunity, you understand why the Bible's so big on this now? Like you're spitting in the face of what Jesus did on the cross when I say, I don't have to live with you. I don't like you. You're different. You think different. You, right? I'm going to say, you know what? The work that Jesus did on the cross was just about saving me. And God would say, no, 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 no. Your little scene is just one little piece in my big story. Now, just to drive the point home, I mean, in Ephesians 5, we get to that marriage advice. Wives submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Husbands love your wives as Jesus loves the church and laid his life down for her. It sounds like great marriage advice, which it is, but in the end, Paul goes, see, I'm not talking about marriage. I'm actually talking about the relationship between Jesus and the church. Like, your marriage is supposed to be an image bearer of God building his community, his kingdom. See how it affects our marriage now? Like, me loving my wife the way Jesus loved the church is about me participating in God, restoring his image. My function, my God-given function in the same way. My hope and my prayer for you is that you begin to see God's story, his big meta-narrative, and see um, maybe that you could read the Bible, like just reading it better. You've got some boundaries, some parameters now as you read through and you see that everything's kind of pointing to Jesus. But not only that, okay, that you would see more clearly how your scene, as small as it is, belongs 
in his story. Your life is not insignificant. Okay? Our, role, our, our functions and role have been distorted, right? I mean, this world will tell you you are what you do. Well, that's what God said, except he got to define what we do. Now it's if, you're, if you plumb, you're a plumber, or you teach, you're a teacher, right? If you practice law, you're a lawyer. God said, no, I, I created that whole thing. <laughs> you are supposed to right, be, do what you are. There's supposed to be a connection there, right? But not like that. We get in this crazy cycle of you are who you're in relationship with, right? Status is the big thing on Facebook. We go check the status. and You know what that teaches us? When we, we, our identity is created in status, then, then I am who I'm in relationship with. So when I'm treated poorly, I must not be worthy of anything. But, but if I'm a person who gets treated well, then I must be worthy. You see how identity can, go, can get jacked up? God says, no, you, you are supposed to, what you do is supposed to be directly connected with who you are, but not like that. Who you're in relationship is supposed to be a reflection of who you are, but not like that. That's why Paul will say over and over again, in Christ, in Christ, get it, figure out your identity. Figure it out. That's not who you are anymore. The old is gone, the new is here. Man, Christ's follower, that's who you are. You're now in him. And he is finding what was lost. He is fixing what was broken. He is making clear what was distorted. Last thing, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I know this message gets confused. Like the Bible, what? Why don't we read the Bible? And everybody has one, but nobody opens it. And so confusing. And what's the church anyway? They look more divided than unified. Yes, I'm sorry. This is the story of God, Okay. And what Jesus is saying to you, I'm on a rescue mission. I'm the hero of that story, and I'm coming to rescue you and pull you into God's story. Your worth is no longer based on what you do for a living and how prestigious that is or who you're in relationship with, except for a relationship with me. That's what Jesus would say. So you're being invited into God's kingdom today to be adopted as a son or a daughter into the household of the God of the universe. I'm gonna pray for you, and I just want you to understand that to get here, you don't have to go sign up for adoption. Like, you don't have to go um, undo all the wrong things that you've done. That's the point. Jesus is saying, I already did all the undoing. All I need you to do is believe on me, and I'll fix the whole thing. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, don't buy into this idea that I have to go work it off. Jesus says, no, you'll never get to the end of that, and you and I will never have a relationship. I want a relationship with you today. So here's the thing. I'll cover all that. You just come in. Just believe on me. It's that simple. Let me pray for you and ask the worship team to come back up.